I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astell. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 10, we read Neoconservatism, the Autobiography of an Idea by Irving Kristol. Irving Kristol was born in 1920 in Brooklyn into a working-class family of non-observant Jews. His father, Joseph, was a middle manager in the men's clothing business. His mother, Bessie, died of cancer when he was 16. In the late 1930s, Crystal attended City College, a political hotbed and overwhelmingly Jewish New York institution at the time. There, his experience with the injustices of the Great Depression pushed him to the left. At City College, he became a Trotsky communist, a branch of Marxism that opposed Stalinism while believing in revolutionary communism. After graduating from college, he met his wife, historian Gertrude Himmelfarb, at a Trotsky gathering. But soon afterward, he became disillusioned with communism and ended his affiliation. He and Gertrude were married in 1942 and had two children, including his son Bill, who has become a leading public intellectual in his own right. During World War II, Crystal served in the Army Infantry in Europe. After the war, he took an editing job with Commentary, then a liberal anti-communist magazine, and thus began a six-decade career in editing and writing for multiple journals of opinion. In 1965, he and Daniel Bell started The Public Interest, a new journal. Its founding is generally considered the beginning of neoconservatism. In 1969, he began teaching at New York University, where he remained for nearly two two decades. During those years, he continued publishing commentary in journals and newspapers. In 1985, he started a new journal, The National Interest, and this one devoted to foreign affairs. Crystal left teaching in 1987 and moved to Washington, D.C. to join the American Enterprise Institute. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2002. He died in 2009 at the age of 89. This book contains a series of essays that Crystal wrote over the course of his career. As he's widely regarded as the godfather of neoconservatism, his life story really represents the story of neoconservatism as well. And biography plays a central role here, much more so than in any other book we've read. So to give us a sense for neoconser- what neoconservatism is and how it came to exist, I think it helps to understand Crystal's journey from originally being a Trotskyist communist, becoming later the leading, a leading conservative thinker. So to get us started, I'd like to read a bit from the preface where Crystal explains a little about his journey. Here, this is in uh, Crystal's own words. What exactly is neoconservatism anyway? I would say it is more a descriptive term than a prescriptive one. It describes the erosion of liberal faith among a relatively small but talented and articulate group of scholars and intellectuals, and the movement of this group toward a more conservative point of view. Conservative, but different in certain important respects from the traditional conservatism of the Republican Party. We were, most of us, from lower middle class or working class families, children of the Great Depression, veterans of World War II, who originally accepted the New Deal in principle and had little affection for the kind of isolationism that then permeated American conservatism. We regarded ourselves originally as dissident liberals, 
dissident because we were skeptical of many of Lyndon Johnson's great society initiatives and increasingly disbelieving of the liberal view of human nature and of social and economic realities on which those programs were based. Then, after 1965, our dissidents accelerated into a barely disguised hostility. As the counterculture engulfed our universities and began to refashion our popular culture, we discovered that traditional bourgeois values were what we had believed in all along, and indeed simply had taken for granted. Suddenly, discussion of all social and economic issues, hitherto abstract, technical, and largely based on the findings of the social sciences, was infused with a controversy over values. In 1972, the nomination of Senator George McGovern, an isolationist and a candidate of the New Left, signified that the Democratic Party was not hospitable to any degree of neoconservatism. Only a few of us drew the obvious conclusion that we would have to try to find a home in the Republican Party, which had always been an alien political entity so far as we were concerned, but with every passing year our numbers grew. The traditional Republican Party that was so alien to us was a party of the business community and of smaller town America. It had traditionally little use for intellectuals whom it regarded with some justification as more foolish than wise. Its economic policy stopped short at the ideal of a balanced budget. It was still campaigning against the New Deal and in foreign policy, its inclination was almost always isolationist. It also tended to ally itself with the Southern Democrats in opposition to civil rights for black Americans. This is why in 1964, only a few neoconservatives supported Barry Goldwater, while the rest of us went along with Hubert Humphrey. In the course of the 1970s and 1980s, however, the Republican Party gradually modernized itself to some degree, in part because of the writings of neoconservatives. This was most clearly seen in the case of Ronald Reagan, the first Republican president to pay tribute to Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the first Republican president since Theodore Roosevelt, whose politics were optimistically future-oriented rather than bitterly nostalgic or passively adaptive. The congressional elections of 1994 ratified this change, just as the person of Newt Gingrich exemplified it. As a consequence, neoconservatism today is an integral part of the new language of conservative politics. So that gives us a sense for his journey from being a, a Trotskyite and uh, shifting over to the Republican Party. And it also gives us a sense for what the P Republican Party looked like back in those years, which definitely different than now. Yeah, the change is, is so fundamental in what he's done that for people of our generation, it seems second nature to say that, well, yeah, of course, the Republican Party will have some conservatives can have a future looking vision. But I, I guess the emphasis on tradition was just a bigger part of what made you a conservative in the days before Reagan, you know, going back to this, going back to that, you know, doing it as we've always done. What we, I guess what we think of as country club Republican, that sort of, mm -hmm. you know, establishment Republican. Yeah. Looking to preserve, but not necessarily to innovate. And I found that some of the earlier essays of this book, he, he expressed those, those thoughts and other people have too, that, you know, the Republican party is really just looking back. And I think it was in, in, I forget which essay it was. He talked about how the Democrats seem to have the vision. And then when Republicans get elected, mostly all they do is fix the broken parts of democratic visions, and, you know, make mm -hmm. them, make them pay for themselves, make them not overspend, but they're just tinkering with the ideas of the other party. And then as I was reading, I was thinking, you know, like the contract with America and, and the Gingrich Republicans, those were ideas. And when I was, I was in high school then, and I remember thinking that the Democrats really had no ideas left. 
And it was the, the Republicans who were saying, well, let's try this. Let's do this. Maybe get rid of this. Put this in instead. I guess a lot of that is, I didn't realize at the time, due to the neoconservative movement. It's, you know, invigorating the party with ideas. And I think maybe we're starting to run out of some of those ideas. But in the 90s, that was, the action was on the right. The, you know, the intellectual action was on our side. And it was the left who was saying, well, let's just, you know, keep these New Deal programs the way they are, these great society programs. They don't work great, but maybe if we put more money in them, they'll work better somehow. So I, I think we, I mean, we should, we have to credit Crystal and, and others in that movement with giving us some, some real rigor and freshness in a, in a party that was not about fresh ideas until then. I think that's right. And it really jumped out at me as we were reading these essays that that was the case because you're conservative and maybe part of the Republican party for most of our lives. And then don't necessarily realize what it, maybe what it looked like before. So as I was reading, I kept thinking, well, this is stuff that we, we already do. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me like, oh yeah, it's because of them. <laughs> so in, in the introduction, he, he hits on a number of these points. So there's a, a first essay that's, that's an introduction and he's, he gives us some of the characteristics of neoconservative ideology. It's sort of a the first uh, social science approach to issues. And it's really interesting to think that maybe we didn't take that approach, you know, years ago because it just seems so, you know, natural and, and part of par for the course to have a, an American Enterprise Institute or a Heritage Foundation mm -hmm. or Cato. I guess they're more libertarian, but still these think tanks that are very active and pumping out ideas all the time. But it really was the case that, that AEI, American Enterprise Institute, it existed before, but it took on and hired a large number of these neocons, and, and they're the ones who really jump-started the, the whole social science um, approach. So that, and that's sort of a rigorous research and analysis to identify true causes of problems and a belief in so, that social problems could be eased um, but not erased, and, which was, I guess, a different attitude. So then another, thing, another characteristic is acceptance of economic and social inequality support for the welfare state. That's a little bit different. And we have essays here that, that we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. And then a strong defense of Western democracy. And th this is kind of, I think, where most of us would identify and understand neoconservatism to be because of the Iraq war. Now, he doesn't get into the Iraq war. And I understand from other outside, other readings that he, he personally had a, some misgivings, but it certainly was the the origins of neoconservative thought that he was a part of early on that laid the seeds for, for the future policy. But it's sort of like this neo-Woodrow Wilson, this neo-Wilsonian uh, policy wherein the U.S. has a moral obligation to assist the spread of democracy by, by whatever means necessary. Some of those seeds were planted with, with him. But this personal journey is a big part of it too, because that, you know, it, it's not particularly interesting that one man used to be on the left and now is on the right. But I think the fact that all that intellectual rigor was on the left when he was growing up in the, and uh, coming up with ideas in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, and that that was lacking on the left meant that maybe we had to, it had to be that as the left got more left and left guys like Crystal behind, them coming over to the right brought that tradition of ideas and investigation and social science that we, I, I, I guess we just didn't bother with, you know, social science was, you know, liberal claptrap from the universities, intellectual nonsense. We didn't need it. We already knew how to run society, you know, just like our grandparents had done. And their kind of thinking from the people who became neoconservatives, maybe 
made us better prepared to address the parts of the world that were changing in a, in a way that didn't fit the model we had been used to. You know, modernization, technology changes, ever increasing urbanization changes the way that people interact with each other. You know, I mean, it seems like the original, the original conservatives like Jefferson in America were, you know, obsessed with the, the yeoman farmer and that was going to be the basis of American life. And that was that. And he didn't like all this, you know, whatever was going on in cities with manufacturing and bankers. But that change was already happening when Jefferson was alive. And you know, somebody has to address it. I mean, is there conservatism that can work on city people? Because if it doesn't, we're not going to have any conservative party in America because so many of us have just had our lives changed by technology and urbanization. So I think, you know, Crystal, as coming out of that milieu, is his his backstory really is essential to why he was able to and and people like him were able to change conservatism and adapt it for modern times yeah it's sort of like uh, it takes one to know one yeah. and and for his part you know he didn't move right and then sort of become part of the you know traditionalist wing i mean he social science political philosophy this is how he this is this is how he engaged with the world and that group of neoconservatives of dissident liberals as he says this is how they have always fought and made made arguments and so when they shift to the right now they're turning and they know they want they want to take the arguments directly to their old friends on terms that their old friends would understand and want to identify holes in the arguments and and in fact this is our first essay from 1967 he has an essay called american intellectuals and foreign policy and he is not a fan of what he calls intellectuals, and he really is taking it to them. It really strikes me that these, these are his old friends, mm. and so you know, there's there's nothing like the fervor of a of an apostate, and I'm sure his friends viewed him that way, and so he had he had to be extra sharp. Yeah, and um, I, I guess I guess back. nobody ever really took it to them on their own terms before. You know, if somebody was a communist, you just said he was wrong or you know crazy you know, or godless or whatever. And yeah, we, I mean, we need that because that's not gonna, if you want to convince people, you can't just say, well, that guy's an idiot. You know, you've got to tell me why. And yeah, mm -hmm. no, no one, somebody steeped in the tradition. And I think also as a Trotskyite too, he's used to being a dissident because I mean, they, they were already at odds with the main, you know, communist international, you know, uh, with Stalinist and, and Maoist parties around the world. They hated Trotskyites too. So I guess these guys were already from the, a wing of independent thinkers within the left. So maybe maybe mm -hmm. the, the transition was a little more natural for all that. The one, one line in this essay that just jumped out at me is, no modern nation has ever constructed a foreign policy that was acceptable to to its intellectuals. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, it's yeah. true. I you never, I can't, I can't think of a time when college professors and, and public intellectuals were just sitting and saying, Yes, what the State Department's doing now is a okay. They're they're right on. <laughs> no, it's always been. Yeah, you know we shouldn't be dealing with these people. We should be dealing with these people. We can't muddy our hands with that. You know, you know the the realism of you know when you when you actually get when you actually have to do it when you actually have to defend America's place in the world. And sometimes it does mean, especially in the Cold War uh, times that he was writing. You know, we had to be friends with some some dictators who were not not good guys. Because their opponents were, you know, other would-be dictators who were even worse. Yeah, this sort of like getting into the the grit of it, just distasteful to somebody in the ivory tower, I guess. Yeah, and you get the sense that they sat in their ivory towers unopposed, or you know, and sort of had their big, high-minded opinions, and, and no, no one ever challenged them on on some of their 
core assumptions. And I think in this in this essay, Crystal really shows that these are articles of faith on the part of intellectuals. It's not facts. They're, they don't understand the fact of the matter and that just the masses are too stupid to understand it themselves. He's going to them and saying, no, these are your own articles of faith. <laughs> you know, you instinctively detest all traditional societies, he says, as being inherently unjust and instinctively approve all revolutionary ideology as being inherently righteous. And that's not a fact of the matter. That's just your general attitude. And this idealism that you have, that's a complete disrespect of tradition, he says, a suspicion of all institutionalized authority, incorruptible allegiance to your own inner light, he says. (laughs) Those are just your attitudes. That doesn't describe reality. You get the sense that they had never really been challenged. You know, so he says, you're arrogant toward existing authority as presumptively representing nothing but a petrified form of yesteryear's vital forces. So the, these intellectuals, his old friends, they just dismissed you know conservative thinking as Neanderthal. Like you know, you want to say stuck in the past and completely unimaginative, trying to preserve your power. But we figured it out. We're standing high and above. And maybe, maybe there was some legitimacy to those arguments that you know the intellectuals were making. But he'll also point out that. Well, it's not that you sit back and completely understand the world. You know, it's also that you have your own ideology of your own. Yeah, and maybe, and maybe also that they had gone unchallenged so long because of the the lack of that intellectual rigor on the right that that they also had gotten soft. You know, and that the idea of you know iron sharpens iron, and you know, we each of our mm-hmm. arguments gets better for having bumped up against the other. And in an honest debate, you can you can test your own ideas and and you see which parts do have flaws that maybe you didn't notice and which ones are good. This sort of condescension from that intellectual class, it seemed a lot like what you get today when sometimes you make an argument and somebody on the the new, new left or whatever, their alt left, whatever the current batch of radicals is called, will say, you know, well, well, that's just, that's just your privilege. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. you're, you're just racist. Even if it's not an argument about race at all, you know, or you just, that's just a dead white male, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, that's that, that argument that that's what you come up with shows that you haven't been challenged enough either because they're just, it's yeah, just the ad hominem. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting evolution on that, on their part too, because, you know, in the Weaver episode, we talked about postmodernism and I think at some point we will get back to that in another book, but you know, it shows what, how effective the neo neoconservative style of style of combat has really been effective because they've been the intellectuals now have been challenged enough that they've shifted from using social science as you know we're completely right and have identified the fact of the matter to well actually those facts are just artifacts of your you know white privilege that you're trying to that you're trying to to use to suppress and downplay any of our thoughts and arguments so it's almost like an evolution from where they were to how they've been pushed neoconservative style of pushback has brought them to a point where, okay, well, we're not going to win easily on that anymore either. So, you know, we'll move to this new style. Yeah, it's, it's, they've, they've lost that, that uh, intellectual vigor. Even, even the, even the new ideas on the left are not new. I mean, you know, socialism is old. Marxism is old. Yeah, even the yeah. Leninist take on Marxism is a hundred years old at this point or more. So I think, you know, in a way, yeah, the way the neocons kind of won that, battle of bringing conservatism into modern times and having to think about ideas rather than just maintaining them. So let's let's go into some of his foreign policy that's in this essay, because he's, he sees a Republican Party that is all about isolationism, and he calls isolationism an utopian ideal. And in early American history, it, it may have been possible to remain in quote-unquote splendid isolation 
but the world changed, especially with World War II, but even with World War I. He says the, the U.S. needs to accept responsibility for maintenance of the world order. He's making this argument, I think, to both sides. He sees a, a, a Republican Party that's also that's always been, by default, an isolationist party, and the Democrats, especially moving into the McGovern, what he calls the new left, also trending he sees towards towards an isolationism that he finds very dangerous. And he thinks, that, he says, a great power does not have the freedom of inaction that a small power possesses. I mean, there's real responsibilities that America has to take on. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, I think, a reflection of, in the foreign policy sphere, of something that George Will was saying in the domestic policy sphere, is that the uh, failure to make a choice is also a choice. You know, isolationism is the failure to make a choice. Well, let it itself out over there. It's nothing to do with us. But then that is a choice. I mean, that's that's accepting whatever injustice, whatever whatever dictators currently trying to take over the world and saying, well, you know, that's not our thing. But yeah, that, I mean, I think that that also is a problem of modernity where, you know, in, in Washington and Jefferson's day, oh, it took a month to get here. You know, I mean, nobody's coming over here. And we were a poor country in those days. You know, we were not very thickly populated, didn't have a lot of industry compared to Britain. You know, it's easy for, yeah, like he said, a small nation can be isolated because we, it was probably best for us to be isolated in the, you know, time, the decades mm-hmm. that immediately followed the revolution. We weren't ready to take anybody on and nobody really cared what we thought anyway. And, you know, staying out in the Napoleonic Wars for the most part was the, a good idea because they, they were pretty destructive in Europe. And, you know, that, that could have put an end to this project of a republic pretty quickly. But once we were secure, once we you know, finished fighting ourselves in the Civil War and, you know, improve increased and improved ourselves in the decades after it it becomes somebody has to be responsible and if you believe that this country has good ideas and this country is representing something good in the world it's hard to say we should do nothing and let the rest of the world crumble we had a strong british empire that maintained stability and then a balance of power in europe that maintained stability and it really was beginning with World War One, but then especially with World War II, the how that balance of power was completely upended. You needed suddenly an outside force to awaken. And, you know, once once the once the US had built up for World War Two and the world balance of power had changed. You had, you know, the Cold War and rise of Soviet Union and nuclear weapons and it just completely changed the ball game. And it's really interesting to me to think about, you know, Bob T- uh, Senator Bob mm-hmm. Taft and Republican isolationism, which, as you say, probably made sense for, a, for quite a while, but how much that changed. And But fast forward today, the neoconservative argument for a strong and active role for the for the U.S. in the world, obviously that's won over. And there really has been a what I would call a, a general foreign policy establishment consensus on the role of America, where you've had you know fringe elements on both sides who would disagree with that, but there's generally pretty strong views. I mean, let's say in 2018, I would say Hillary Clinton's views on foreign policy were almost indistinguishable from Marco Rubio's. I mean, both of them pretty, pretty yeah. hawkish. Now that's really changing, especially for Republicans changing under Trump to maybe a reversion back to more of an isolationism, you know, America first and let's withdraw from the world. And we don't, it's not our problem to be out there solving the world's problems. And, you know, Trump is even more eager to withdraw from from Syria than maybe and do so maybe even quicker than than Obama wanted to withdraw from Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think there's real changes there, and it's maybe this was the true DNA of of conservatives that it's just returning to, or or maybe maybe this is an aberration. Well, I, I don't I, know. I what think do you think? It, it's the same with the trade ideas that we had for twenty or thirty years a consensus 
almost. I mean, since since Bill Clinton's election, there was an internationalist and free trade consensus among the leadership of both parties, and that held for a while, and it and it ended up with us doing some good on both fronts. And but those other ideas weren't dead, and they were just being ignored by both parties. And that, if they had died, then that would have been okay. I mean, there are ideas that do pass away, but you know, trade protection and isolationism are both, I mean, in certain, I don't know if either of them has a majority support, but they're, they're both out there. And one of the parties was going to pick them up, especially as things started to come loose in 2016. Because a lot, a lot of these ideas were in the, among the Bernie, Bernie Sanders type Democrats too. I mean, they were for protection and they were also pretty mm-hmm. isolationist. Even still, Bernie doesn't right. really, he's not really down with the uh, Russia sanctions. You know, he, he's, he's kind of got that isolationist wing of the Democrats following him. And it, it's interesting to see which one is going to win out because I think one of these parties is going to emerge from the current shuffle as holding those ideas. And you know, maybe it, maybe it's the Republicans now because it's the, the Republican president who likes both of them. But I don't know because it does seem like a lot in the rank and yep. file are maybe they're not openly criticizing the president on isolationism, but they're not really. I mean, Rubio is still an internationalist, you know. And so I don't. Right. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but the ideas aren't dead. So somebody's going to pick them up and try and run with them because there's votes there and because, you know, some people actually genuinely believe it. Well, it really is striking to me how we could go from this isolationist attitude to let's spread democracy around the world. And it really is a demonstration of how influential neoconservative thought has been and how, how much it's merged with the Republican Party. Because you go from a lead up to World War II, where the country in general just really had no interest in returning to Europe to try to save them from themselves. You know, outside of Pearl Harbor, you really wonder whether there ever would have been, you know, U.S. engagement. But then, you know, fast forward 70 years or whatever, and we're going into Iraq, not really for our national security concerns, more to help the Iraqi people, yeah. I guess. I mean, we we talked about, I mean, WMD was, was a big part of it, but the spread of democracy abroad, I mean, those are goals that are orders of magnitude removed from, you know, where we were when Irving Kristol started to join the Republican movement, or uh, sorry, the conservative movement. The, the flip-flopping between the parties, too, is, is something he notes in this essay. He says, it's the peculiarity of foreign policy that's the area of public life in which ideology flounders most dramatically. I think that's true. I mean, you see, Mm -hmm. Democrats were all about pulling out of Iraq, you know, and they were protesting Bush when he started the war. And and now when when Trump wants to pull out of Syria, a lot of those same Democratic leaders are saying, you can't pull out and they'll leave a vacuum of power. And, you know, we've got to preserve stability around the world. And it's like that both parties just neatly switch sides and, you know, shamelessly has adopted the other one's talk, talking points. Neither yeah, of them seems yeah. particularly related to our domestic ideology. It's just, you know, which which coat you're going to put on today and then the other guy's going to put on the opposite. And then that's, you know, it, it's weird because it, you think it, sh- it should have an ideological bent, right? I mean, why, I mean, it's an idea, so it should have should be related to other ideas. But it I don't know if it is, which one we ended up with because we have the isolationist president now, then the Democrats are now back to being internationalist. Well, okay. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, there's like Crystal said, there's no great radical text on the conduct of foreign policy and no great conservative text either. It's just, it's just, right, you know, yeah. what works, what we like at the time. Maybe that's part of what's frustrating. Kind of defies the, the rules that we have around domestic politics in our own minds. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's move on to the next essay. He, he titles it About Equality, uh, written in 1972. And here we see some of the, the neoconservative bent about kind of the welfare state. It's not that they disagree with the goals. It's just that for neoconservatives, they started to see, well, actually all these programs, all these solutions that the left has come up with to solve all these social problems. It actually really isn't working. So he says, uh, most socioeconomic research related to inequality is shot through with disingenuousness, sophistry, and unscrupulous statistical maneuvering. I mean, it really took, again, it took one to know one. I mean, from his from his description, Republican Party at the time, conservatives at the time, probably just would have ignored yeah. any <laughs> socioeconomic research. Like, no, he read it problem. and analyzed it and found it wanting. And that's better than any conservative movement had done up to that time. And he calls out the motives again of these intellectuals, basically saying like, professors are engaged in class struggle with the business community for status and power. They clearly dislike our liberal bourgeois commercial society. They think it's unfit to survive and seek power to reconstruct it. Now, of course, I think that's just oh, as yeah. true now, is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are, well, you think about it, you, get, you go through all the work to get a PhD, to get a tenured pr professorship. It's not I guess it's it's just human to think, look at all I've done here. I'm really good at this one thing and I should get respect. Meanwhile, this guy runs a dumb internet startup and he's a billionaire and, you know, this guy, yeah. you know, hits a baseball and he's a millionaire and, you know, what about me? I'm doing something important. So I, I guess that that's human and it, I think Crystal says it plays into their motives of, and that's it, that's believable. You know, it's, well, look, we're the ones you should be listening to, not these idiots on TV. Look at me. Mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've written books. <laughs> you know, that's that is uh, the marketplace of ideas. I guess people, you know, that doesn't matter yeah, your credentials. Absolutely. If you know, people don't want to hear it sometimes. He's also quick to criticize where the kind of business argument falls short. And I actually think this was probably super helpful at the time, and it's even continues to be helpful. You know, he's he's sort of pointing out like, hey guys, this is where this is where the problem is, and so if we need to address this in order to kind of counteract the, to push back against the argument of the left. But he says, uh, bourgeois society, which basically means the free market capitalism, falls short of addressing man's spiritual nature when material problems no longer are urgent. And he says, basically, this just gives our opponents an opening. And they'll argue that it's material dissatisfaction, but that's not what it is. It really is the spiritual side. And again, this goes back to a couple books we've read already, including last week with Nisbet, you know, including George Will and Weaver, all pointing to, hey, look, the the left will point to the short some shortcomings in materialism, the, the inequality, but that's actually not the problem. That's not why people are upset. That's not why they're restless. It's actually because they feel like there's a hole, you know, and he says, there's a, this is what Crystal says, he calls it a religious vacuum, a lack of meaning or larger purpose that provokes feelings of alienation. It's not material envy. And he'll, he'll also argue that, you know, politics are not competent to deal with that problem. Well, Nisbet might, you know, disagree. George Will might disagree, but still, I mean, he's helping the, the business, right? The economic conservatives understand the freedmen's of the world. Like, Hey, look, you know, they're attacking you on material terms and you're pushing back on material terms. That's all good, but that's actually not the problem. And if we could address the underlying problem, then we could really, I, yeah, back. I thought that was a great point. And it's not, and also his point that it's not just material envy, because I think that's a lot of people's reaction to socialism. You just want other people's stuff. And it, it's not quite, it's more like misdirected rage at that hole in the, in their own worldview, at that miss, at that missing mm -hmm. focus. And they say, well, it must be rich people's fault. 
look at them doing everything bad. But I, I think that doesn't carry over to most people. And I just like, I think all this talk about income inequality is not what most people are concerned about. I, I think a lot of people are concerned about poverty. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone, most people don't particularly care about inequality, except to the extent that it might exacerbate poverty. You know, I think most people would say, mm-hmm. well, if everybody got richer, that'd be fine. You know, if if the very poor were now much better off, but also the rich guy got a heck of a lot richer, well, that's okay. I mean, because then at least that poor guy would have access to the things that we think a, a human being should have access to, and that that's maybe that's that's something I don't I don't think we do a good enough job in conservatism of drawing the distinction between. Is that we're against poverty too? We think capitalism is the cure to it, and I think it. And when Crystal was first making that case, it might have been easier to dismiss. But since the end of the Cold War, as as capitalism has gone around the world and into all these places that were formerly Soviet bastions, I mean, all the all of the evidence, all of the social science evidence of the sort that he appreciated shows us that you know the people living in the direst poverty has diminished so much since since even the 80s mm-hmm. let alone the 50s and that's mm-hmm. because of capitalism and it, and a conservative might who is genuinely concerned about the problem of poverty at home and in the world could look at that and and say yeah but the answer the answer is freedom you know the answer is to democratic capitalism not all of these madcap ideas from das kapital so I just I just think history is really borne out Crystal's ideas and his and and ideas of of people like Friedman in in a in a way that isn't even fully addressed in this book because the essays really go, only go up to the '90s. But in the 20 years since then, 25 years since then, we've we've really seen that he's right about a lot of these things. And in this essay, he'll also say because we're getting it wrong, and you just described it well, Kyle. Because we're on the wrong track and don't quite understand what the core problem is. You know, we're trying to placate this uh, egalitarian impulse, but it's never going to be enough. Because as he says, no reforms will ever placate the egalitarian impulse because it's ideological. So each reform in the direction of sort of equality and making things egalitarian across the board, each reform only invigorates this impulse even more. It's almost like he's saying, come on, guys, you got to understand. The left is making this argument and you're tacitly accepting it and trying to say, okay, well, how about this or how about that? And it's never going to be enough. And he says, in fact, working classes have been the most resistant of all classes to the spirit of radicalism. Anyone who's familiar with the working class knows that they are far less consumed with egalitarian bitterness or envy than our college professors or affluent journalists. This is the point that you were just making. And all kinds of psychological research shows that that envy has a proximate element to it. You know, people are envious of, I'm not envious of Jeff Bezos. I'm envious of my coworker <laughs> who got the promotion yeah. that I thought I should have gotten, <laughs> you know, you know, there's, it's like my, 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 you know, it's uh it's the brother-in-law who you think is an idiot and somehow he's got a $500,000 a year job or something like that. That's, that's where envy rises to the fore. It's not stepping back and saying, Oh, Bill Gates, you know, that, that jerk, he, he doesn't deserve all that. It's, it's interesting that people, because I, I, when I first started reading some of the ideas, I thought, well, this is going to be Me Too Republicanism, like what they called Eisenhower Republicanism after after the war, where Republicans said, all right, we're going to stop trying to repeal the New Deal. People seem to like security. We're just going to do it a little, maybe a little less, maybe a little tighter, balance the budget. But that's not what he's getting at at all. That, that's what I thought it was going to be at first. But I think he's, yeah, he's making the point. If you just give mm-hmm. them halfway socialism, you're not winning the argument and you're not really even making a good compromise and you're not really improving anybody's life because halfway socialism doesn't get anybody out of poverty and it doesn't address a lot in, it doesn't address any of the spiritual problems of life it's just like a milk toast mm-hmm. measure of what they were going to do which also doesn't work and that's that that was mm-hmm. sort of eye-opening to me because i i had thought of neocons more as just that sort of me too republican 
you know, you know, with with a more robust foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, he's he is more, um, mm-hmm. I think, rigorously capitalist than I had realized. Hmm. He is, but he also believes in the welfare state. And let's skip to that essay. He calls it the Republican Future, written in 1976. He actually believes in the welfare state. He says welfare state is perfectly consistent with the conservative political philosophy. In our urbanized, industrialized, highly mobile society, people need government action to cope with problems such as old age, illness, unemployment. Now, that's a statement that you wouldn't hear no. coming out of the mouth of, uh, of a Barry Goldwater. He's, he's still has his liberal heart in that, you know, he believes in the welfare state. It's just that he says the task is to create the kind of welfare state, which is consistent with self-reliance and individual liberty. And he gives some examples that I found fascinating. He says, you know, for, so, so what is consistent with self-reliance and individual liberty? Uh, How about, how about the tax deductibility of medical insurance premiums or tax deductibility of additional contributions to social security or to pension funds? And he talks about all this tax policy that's, that is boilerplate Republican conservative. (laughs) You know, that is, that has been fully and wholesale adopted by, by conservatives in the Republican party. And while I was reading this, I was thinking, yeah, geez, this didn't exist before. So he's basically the godfather of our entire social policy, which I just found fascinating. I have my doubts about using the tax code to make these things work, but his general ideas are, yeah, they do make sense. And he's right that, um, at least in what we used to call paleoconservatism, it's, that's not inconsistent with the welfare state. It's libertarian conservatism that is. You know, I mean, the, like Otto von Bismarck yeah. invented the welfare state, you know, in large part to pull the rug out from other socialists who were getting too popular in Germany. He said, well, all right, well, you're right. Old people do need some pensions. We'll, we'll take care of that. And that was easy back then because there weren't that many very old people mm-hmm. since, you know, medicine was not advanced as it was today. But that's, that's also part of it is, you know, dealing with the chat. The, the ideas shouldn't change with every generation, uh, turn on, turn on a dime, flip on their heads. But the actual conditions of the world do change and the problems of urbanization and longer lifespans are things that we have to consider. We can't just, when people were living into mm-hmm. their 80s and 90s, you know, a solution like Social Security kind of had to happen, I think. And I think Crystal is saying we have, to, we, we have to accept that because it's the world is different than it was in the 1860s or something where there might be a few old timers living to that age, but most folks worked until they died. And they didn't, you know, it's not like everyone was dying at 50. People did, there were old people, but it was not nearly as many and not nearly so very old. And it's all fine and good to be Milton Friedman and have an absolutist position where you stand back and say, this is exactly how the world should work. This is the most efficient system. And I'm not saying I don't share some of those some of those views as a general matter, but you got Irving Crystal who comes in and says, well, and even George Will said the same thing, you know, well, no, there's some problems in the world and we should identify some of them in the welfare state. You know, that's part of it. And Social Security, as you just described, yeah, we need to take care of old people. We just can't let them. But let's let's be smart about it. Let's do it in a conservative way. Let's let's make it efficient as possible to actually deliver the kind of services that need to be delivered with the least amount of waste. And using it through the tax code, look, there's endless amounts of inefficiencies in the tax code. I'll completely agree. But there is a pretty solid consensus among Republicans and conservatives that if we're going to do this, and just about all of, you know all think that. We should. Well, then let's do it the most efficient way possible, which is yeah, and that, through the tax that code, give the tax credit. Another effect of it makes people pay taxes. That's a that's sort of a, one of the things Burke discussed in our, <laughs> yeah. our episode seven, I think it was. You know, he said like, well, you've got these great ideas over there in France, but do you have a, a functioning tax collection system? Do you have a military that's not going to 
revolt. And those are conservative ideas to the government actually working. So, I mean, putting them in the tax code, that does actually, you know, it does make sure people pay the tax and fund the government. So that's sort of a, like a practical conservatism you know, as ideological. I mean, we're, this is a book about an ideological movement, but a lot of what he's talking about here is not what we normally call ideological. It's more, it's very practical. We're talking about how yeah. the working classes are not nearly as radical as the professorate. That, that's because I think a lot of like regular folks are not ideological. They don't get their politics from a book. Right. People see some social programs and they say, well, that's just a bunch of waste. And you see another one, you say, oh yeah, that's, that's what kept my grandma, you know, able to keep her house, you know, and you know, that's what, yeah, that's what kept my, uh, my neighbor who, who's blind was able to get this social security and, you know, he could live independently. That works. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I think in this way, he's very, uh, practical, which is in some ways an asset of conservatism also just, you know, accepting the real world and nature as they are and saying, well, this actually works. This actually doesn't work. Our time is running short. I wanted to get to this, at least one more, this last essay, he calls it the new face of American politics written in 1994, Mm. where he talks about the religious right. And I want to get your thoughts on that. He says, the emerging religious cultural conservatives is something new in American politics. Now, again, in the nineties, you know, we were teenagers, so maybe not as cognizant of the world, but to my mind, like, right. Religious people have always been part of Republican Party. That's always part of the coalition. But he's saying, well, no, that's what's changed is that there was also a lot of religious people in the in the Democratic Party, too. But the evolution of the Democratic Party from becoming the party of the New Deal to this secularist party that stands neutral between the religious and the irreligious, that's a major change. And of course, this is what Bork, you know, much most of his book is really touched on a lot of this. But the change in in the dynamic of the Democrats is is what sparked a religious upsurge in the Republican Party during the 90s. Of course, we see the the outcome of that. But what I found it interesting is, well, what I found interesting is in also in the essay he he says there's a downside to that that there's that religious conservatives have this absolutist fervor that could also create a problem. So he's he's viewing them from a distance, you know, observing and saying, well, this could cause a lot of problems. But then he also says, but we need to embrace them so that we can build a, a long term majority. Well, we, we have, certainly. Although it's interesting to see sort of like the post-religious conservative. There was an article today or this week, I forget who wrote it, just about how uh, like the popularity of, of Donald Trump among people who consider themselves Christian but don't particularly go to church. And that's, I think, a group that we see more of than we did in the 90s, which mm-hmm. in some respects was a an age of rising religiosity, or at least higher than now. As people talk about whether it was a fourth great awakening or not, and you know that's something that we probably can't tell you know, until we're decades removed. The Republican Party clearly did, as Crystal suggested, and embraced religious conservatives and drew a lot of them away from the Democrats, you know, as they saw the Democrats becoming more rigidly secular and at times even hostile to religion. Then also as religion declined, well, what do, what do conservatives do with the folks left behind by it who are still kind of religious? And they still, you know, still identify that way, but they don't really do much about it. So, yeah, so culturally, they're still sort of religious and maybe Southern, uh, even if they don't necessarily go to church every single week, but they still identify themselves with, yeah, kind of culturally as as religious conservative. But it really is fascinating to see an evolution of the Republican Party. And, and for our purposes here, 
working out what it means to be conservative, what is conservatism, and what has it historically been. Well, a Republican Party of the 1940s and 50s is just very different than now because all of these trends that he identified with religious conservatives and then the, the neoconservative influence in foreign policy and in uh, using social science research to push back and so forth. I mean, that's a that's a pretty remarkable evolution and change in what it, what it meant to be conservative then versus what it means to be conservative now. It's in some ways almost a, a, a wholesale. I think so. I mean, I think change. I don't know. Closing thoughts on what Crystal means to the conservative thought. I would say that even a podcast like this is an outgrowth of his intellectual conservatism. I, th- I think people didn't used to examine what it meant to be conservative. It was just, you know, what we had done, what we had always done. Because tradition doesn't really bear examination. It is, you know, but ideas that are forward-looking of the sort Crystal and his neoconservative cohort, it dragged the Republican Party into. That 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 sort of introspection is good for us. And I think it's, it's the sort of thing we're doing right here and that other people are doing as they try and figure out what it all means and what's the point and where we're going. And I, I think we owe even that, that spirit of intellectual inquiry to uh, the crystal and the neoconservative movement. Perfect. All right. That's the last word. And that's serving crystal. I am confident that we will return and, and talk more neoconservatism down the line. But next time we're going to read William F. Buckley, Athwart History, Selected Essays from His Time in Public Life. We're going to take a few of the essays as we've done here with Crystal and read those. So hopefully you'll join us then. Thank you.